0: The Boarding Schools Expo takes the time and stress out of finding the right school to meet your family's needs. By bringing schools to major centres where they're all under the one roof, the Boarding School Expo gives your family the chance to discuss your educational needs directly with representatives of the school. In 2022, they're launching Boarding Expo 365, a virtual expo reaching families across Australia. Whether you're up in the Kimberley, flying choppers east of Normanton, or making Bree on King Island, Boarding Expo 365 will showcase schools right from your kitchen table. It's truly destination boarding from wherever you call home. Head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au, to discover your boarding school options today. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today.
1: It's a warm summer's day. You're standing at a sheep market in a Middle Eastern country as tens of thousands of people descend upon the city in preparation for the upcoming celebration of Eid. The atmosphere is palpable. Excitement, joy, and a little bit of stress. Picture your local shopping centre on Christmas Eve. Your job? To communicate the significant rule changes as to how these people can transport their sheep from the market to their home. Namely, that sheep can no longer be transported in a car boot. You're in another country where you don't speak the language or share the culture, and your job is to communicate these changes that have been imposed by another country. So, what do you do? Well, this is the situation that today's guest, Blythe Cowan found herself in the very first time she worked in the live export industry. An industry that is highly contentious and known by its failures rather than its successes. But there have been successes, and Australia has achieved things that no other country in the world has. That is in part due to people like Blythe who have invested significant amounts of their time and energy to build relationships and drive change in countries where Australian livestock are sold to. In this episode, Blythe speaks candidly about the five years she spent working overseas in the live export industry, her decision to move on, and how she found her new normal after such an all-consuming, challenging, and rewarding job.
2: My first experience in working internationally with live export was heading into Qatar with Meat and Livestock Australia for a festival called Eda Ladha, which was one of the the peak periods of demand for Australian livestock. And so this was pre-2011 when all the terrible footage came out of poor handling throughout the live export chains and teams were working in the ground sort of recognising we needed to change the handling behaviours with our animals but also been in quite a difficult situation, you know, instigating big cultural change where someone has purchased a... A product, sort of the animals office and has done for a really long time. We're talking decades and decades. So going in and creating that change was quite sensitive and in another way, quite bolshy and just an incredible cultural experience to be dropped into a foreign country. Um, I guess the Middle East holds a lot of different Paradigms for us in Australia, um, what we're presented on the media and what we're told happens over there doesn't always match up with what you see on the ground. And I guess one of my passions in, you know, in travelling has been to really immerse yourself in local culture and get to know what somewhere is really like as living in it. So to be able to go in and be part of this festival where you're meeting everyday people and immersed in the chaos that is Ida was was uh, pretty fantastic.
1: So what was it like in Qatar? I can imagine, as you said, like it's exciting to go overseas and being a new place, but also what, I'm not sure about you, but I'm sure what many of us knew or know of the Middle East isn't necessarily the most positive. It's not somewhere you kind of put on a, on a travel destination list.
2: Yeah, and for that reason, I was really interested to go and see, you know, what matched my expectations and what differed. And a lot of, you know, a lot of our work on the ground was obviously working with some of the indentured labour throughout the Middle East. So these guys are from India, Pakistan, um, a range of countries across Africa. And so dealing with with sort of that demographic through to the, the owners and the managers of the feedlots and abattoirs, which were f- also from a really diverse cultural background, and then meeting with you know Qataris and people who were coming Qataris expats from all over the world so like anything it's just so much more complex than your initial look and i think also like everything it's the the humanity and the people and that experience of meeting all these different people and hearing their stories and understanding how people live was just an incredible eye opener into a window, I guess, into that culture.
1: What does the landscape and the atmosphere look and feel like in Qatar in the lead up to and during the Festival of Eid?
2: I guess there's a huge buzz. Um, You know, people have said it's almost the equivalent, not in nature, but in build-up and excitement and expectation to um, Western society's Christmas so there's you know posters everywhere with Eid Mubarak. So you know Happy Eid. Um, everyone you know gets holidays. So it's quite exciting. Everyone's going to be able to catch up with their family, which is really, I guess, one of the core values of, of a lot of the people living over there is family is everything. And you know being able to celebrate their families and give gifts and catch up with them. They're all really excited to be able to do that. And, you know, the purchase of an animal for consumption by their family and then giving away to the needy um, is another really big part of that. So the Australian livestock were a, played a really important role in making sure people could fulfil that need to to both feed their families and give to the needy.
1: So, obviously, that's why you were in the Middle East because of the presence of Australian animals in, well, not just in this festival, but as a part of their um, food supply and food chain anyway. Tell me about that experience. I mean, it's one thing to to go over to a new country and work in this space in a normal day, like normal period of time, but to be there during such a massive event and occasion must have just put a whole other spin on it.
2: Absolutely. it. Um, you can imagine coming into a country, uh, the, the buzz and the excitement and the complexity of an event, say like Christmas in Australia, and all of a sudden you've got these Australians parachuting in uh, with great lofty goals of changing animal welfare in a country and a culture Whilst everyone else is, you know, so busy and servicing all of the complex requirements of, of something like Eid al-Adha. And these days I look back in amazement at the willingness that our trading partners actually took us in and welcomed us amongst all this chaos, their busiest time of year. And they had us coming in and really, really pushing to change and pushing to, Set things up very differently from what they've been before. So from that first visit, I guess that was one of my major takeaways was just how hospitable people were and how they really worked and thought and tried to understand our perspective and help us achieve our
1: goals. So what was the brief? What were the goals that you were there to achieve during that specific event or that? So trip? during
2: that specific event, uh, the first campaigns were in the ute not the boot and so the goal of this campaign was to educate people prior of the expectations that would be required when they came to pick up animals so the the animals all got picked up you know the the peak was the the morning before and then busy the few days before that um but the goal was to make sure people had a vehicle that could transport the animals in a correct manner. Um, there had been poor footage from a, a number of years of unacceptable handling, animals being tied up, um, transported in car boots, and the Ida Lodha festival doesn't work to a our calendar, uh, so it does change dates each year, and that was coming forward for the next sort of decade, was coming forward into a hotter period. And so we really wanted to change the handling methods before Ida Ladha was during a really hot period. So we were essentially rejecting the purchase if people didn't have a correct vehicle and just trying to give some information on why it was important. And in the Quran, there's actually a lot of information on animal welfare and that animals should be treated well and should be, you know, not tied up and given water. And, you know, those base animal welfare requirements are there when particularly dealing with Australian animals who have a very big flight zone is when the handling becomes quite difficult. All animals within those markets, the local animals are highly domesticated. They've been involved with people since they were born. And you can watch, I remember watching in amazement on my first trip there, That one man was walking in front, leading his flock. His flock was just following them. Uh, These were sort of a wassy, fat tail type sheep, and they walked through this market. So they walked through hundreds of other animals, you know, dozens of different groups and mobs. And he could walk through the middle of these mobs, and his whole herd stayed behind him and just followed him through. Uh, You know, he could walk up to any animal and handle it. He could walk up to any animal and lead it away from the rest. And for anyone with a, a little bit of knowledge about the way Australian sheep, you know, and cattle for that matter, are handled on properties, we're just such a bigger scale. Animals receive less individual handling and exposure to people and are therefore less domesticated. So the Australian animals that have been handled were essentially wild. And so the techniques and ways which Worked with normal animals, uh, sorry, local animals that didn't create a great amount of stress on them um, were very stressful to Australian animals.
1: What was the role of livestock in Eid? It sounds like that was a pretty central part of the whole festival if everybody's coming and picking out an animal.
2: Absolutely. So the significance of the animals in Eid al Adha comes from. Uh, a big biblical story where a animal is sacrificed in place of someone's son and that is integral to the Eid al-Adha festival where the animal is generally taken home um, that has been the, the sort of cultural norm is to have an animal at home and on the me- morning of Eid to sacrifice that animal one third of the meat is distributed amongst the family and friends, and two thirds of that animal is given to the needy and the poor um so it's you know a sign of generosity, and the more you can give and the better quality you can give the the better you're offering for this religious ceremony.
1: It's actually a really nice idea. I mean, I know that sounds very. Blase to make comment on another culture's religious festival, and I, I I don't mean it like that, but it is actually like a very generous
2: it's it's really beautiful. yeah. and you know, I kind of imagine sometimes at Christmas here when I look at our amazing table, I go, wow, what if what if we split this table into three and our family, you know always has more food than we need? What if we only had a third of that and we actually gave, you know, the best offering to those in our community in need? And I, I think it is, it's really beautiful.
1: With that in the you, not the boot campaign, were there, you said like that people were quite gracious and it was, you know, um, the, the uh, hospitality was, was good and people were kind of the trading partners were willing to work with you. Was there, I assume there must have been some level of pushback though and that it would have been a challenging, just a challenging task to do at any time of the year, let alone, I suppose, in a high-pressure environment?
2: Absolutely. I think the the best way to describe it really is chaos. The, you know, one of the, the major issues around the handling of the Australian animals with that bigger flight zone um, and being a, a wilder animal was infrastructure wasn't really suited. In Australia, we use things, you know, our yards are designed to utilise and manipulate that large flight zone. So we use things like funnels and races and really know how to work that flight zone with sort of what we call low-stress handling um, to, to create flow on the animals. Because all of these facilities were built with local animals in mind, Uh, They didn't have the same structure to allow flow of our, you know, semi at best domesticated animals. So for starters, it was developing infrastructure which allowed the Australian animals to be handled in a way that was safe for them and safe for the handlers. Um, I'm not sure if many of our listeners have handled sort of a lot of sheep, but I would almost rather handle wild cattle than wild sheep. Really? Because they are oh, sheep fly at you. You know, if you've worked with sheep then you've probably been head butted or had knees taken out or you know, a, a big A weather charging around is a, a little nugget of muscle. Um and working with them can be scary and dangerous if they're you know, you don't have the correct facilities.
1: I never would have thought of that looking at sheep. Mm.
2: Yep, big tough Blythe, more scared of sheep than cattle. <laughs>
1: So coming back to this task you've got of kind of rocking up at a really busy time and trying to influence behaviour change, which in the best of circumstances is an incredibly difficult task, what were some of the experiences you had with that? I'm sure it wasn't all beer and Skittles.
2: No, it wasn't all beer and Skittles. Uh, I guess when you look back at it nostalgically, you laugh. At the time, we were under a lot of pressure. And we did a lot of preparation in preparing yards and plans with management and what, preparing staff in how we would carry it out. And then, of course, when things get busy, you've got hundreds, thousands of people turning up who have always done it a certain way and haven't necessarily caught our communications over that things would be different. And so you've got people turning up at a high stress time of year for them, they've got a lot going on and all of a sudden this whole system which is integral to their Eid uh, period has changed and you've got strangers from another country who don't speak your language well telling you what to do with your food. Um, So certainly there was pushback and certainly once again the humility and uh the aid which uh, the importers provided for us was huge. Um, trying to get people to understand what we were achieving, that we weren't just trying to block them from food, uh, that there were you know, real reasons behind it, it was difficult in that high-stress environment. And at the end of the day, people just wanted their sheep and wanted to get home to prepare the rest of their fam- festival with their family. Um, So, you know, although there were people who got really upset and abused us in words we'll never know the meaning of, <laughs> uh, people were really sweet and people were really flexible as well and, you know, people congratulated us on what we were trying to achieve even then. Um, I remember people, someone turned up in a, a big old Mercedes, or probably wasn't that old, a very big flash Mercedes, And they had a few kids in the back seat and, you know, they rolled up and reversed into the ramp to put their sheep in the boot. Uh, And their English was quite good, which was fortunate. Obviously all of us, you know, had very limited Arabic. And we explained what we were achieving and they said, well, this is, you know, this is a big problem for us. I don't have a lot of time. I've queued a lot of time to get here. Um, How are we going to fix this? And we said, sorry, sir, you're not going to be able to put the sheep in the boot. It's against the rules this year, um, you know. These are the things we're trying to achieve, and he said, "Okay." I had to think. He's like, "Can I put the children in the boot and the sheep on the seat?" <laughs> <laughs> and he was half joking, but he was you know trying to flex around. And I think eventually the the children ended up jumping in with a friend, and the sheep did end up on the back seat.
1: Oh, of this, this Mercedes,
2: Mercedes with creamed leather seats, and I remember the Australian team all just looking at a, around at each other as this Mercedes drove off with the sheep on the back seat with its head between the headrests, looking out the windscreen, and just almost being in awe of of the flexibility of people um, and the good humor in it that they would they would take this on.
1: Yeah, that's. That's incredible. What, um, I understand this first trip for you was also in a volunteer capacity. So how did that opportunity come about to go on this trip and start your career in live export?
2: Well, it's a pretty complex story, I guess, which.
1: All right. Well, I'll ask for the nuts and bolts of it then. (laughs) Uh,
2: I guess it was a, a culmination of, of many, life skills and positions, um, which made me even eligible or considered to go on board this trip. As as you've heard, it's a unique set of circumstances and does require much more than animal handling skills. I'd travelled a lot after school. I'd worked in agriculture, sort of aquaculture. So I worked on cattle stations through the Kimberley uh, worked on pearl farms out in the Buccaneer Archipelago and done quite a bit of time in mining. and between all of these jobs sort of travelling overseas, um, being to sort of most continents, really enjoyed different cultures and meeting people. And then after I'd finished up some mining work in Queensland, I decided it was time to come home. I grew up in the Pilbara region, uh, on a mining town on Yarry Station. And so on my trip home, I ended up back at Yarry and caught up with Annabelle and was doing some work, Annabelle Coppin, who owns Yarri Station, doing some work there. And Annabelle had recently completed a Nuffield scholarship looking into the live export trade. And so I had stopped and do, done some visits through the Middle East and caught up with the Meat and Livestock Australia team there. And from there, she'd been offered ongoing work and that's where, with the al Ludha Festival coming up, they needed extra feet on the ground. And with my my travel experience, my interest in different cultures, with my ability to communicate and connect with people, partnered with my understanding of the Australian livestock industry um, and good animal handling skills, um, I was considered a,
1: a pretty good fit for a tryout over there. So this wasn't something that you had dreamed of since you were a kid and been working towards. It was sort of a you know preparation meets opportunity, like absolutely a, like a chance encounter.
2: I really consider my whole life is right time, right place, right attitude. It um, every amazing opportunity that I've I've had and experienced has come from taking a bit of risk and saying yes. To, to something which, which could be a bit scary or could be a bit challenging. Uh, but giving things a go has always been sort of one of my my main attitudes and drivers.
1: Well, it certainly worked out for you because you ended up working in the live export industry for five years. So after that first trip, how do you go about saying like, you know, oh, thank you, this is a great experience, you know, happy to be here too. I want to do this again. What do I have to do? Like how do I get involved in this in a professional, well, not that you weren't professional there, but you know, I suppose a paid, you know, as, as a career. Yeah,
2: once again, it's just taking opportunities when they're presenting. Although the opportunity was exciting and fantastic, um, I'm not a particularly pushy person when it comes to, you know, I've got a lot of dreams. I don't probably don't even know what most of them are yet. Um, so where I end up is always a bit of an adventure uh, and although that was a, a great adventure it you know I didn't read too much into it as far as a career opportunity. I think I was in a relationship at, in Australia at the time with someone who wasn't particularly keen for me to travel a lot and so although it was a lot of fun I kind of went all right we'll see what happens and it wasn't too long after that the 2011 um, footage presented very widely on mainstream media of some really poor handling across the live export chain, which was shocking and awful and embarrassing that we hadn't, as an industry, done more prior. Um, I know more than most that we were out there trying, but there's a lot of limitations in changing rules in other countries. But the the 2011 footage and subsequent live export ban was really a huge instigator for change. And big change happens through big pressure. So that was when all of a sudden there were was the, I guess, the pressure and the push to really put things in place to be able to make big change in market. Um, so that was the point where, you know, my sort of, I think I might have done two Eid festivals by then. And that was when there was, I guess, funding and drive to really get people in market to to try and figure out how we were going to handle this situation and how we were going to improve the welfare for Australian animals and all animals through those supply
1: chains. There was a framework put in place after the ban, uh, the trade resumed after the, the government imposed that ban in 2011. Can you explain? what that was, how it worked, you know, what was involved and I guess how that, if it made a difference in what you'd been trying to do before the ban and after?
2: Yep. So very quickly industry came together to try and figure out how we could have some control over these animals once they landed in foreign countries. And what was developed was the exporter supply chain assurance system which I'll refer to as ESCAS, which put the onus on the Australian exporter to be able to track animals through their supply chains at risk of their Australian licence. So, you know, obviously we can't go in and change rules in other countries. Um, All of the countries we have trading agreements with are partners with the OIE, which is sort of International Animal Welfare Standards. So they are the standards which which should be upheld and that is what the SCAS system was developed on. So some very clever heads got together and developed the SCAS program which set welfare standards to the OIE. The exporter needed to be able to ensure these were upheld in any facilities which the Australian animals were heading to. And was held accountable for sort of total tallies at the end to ensure that no animals were sort of being leaked out of systems. So it was a pretty, pretty complex system and put a huge amount of pressure on exporters. Once again, just, you know, the willingness of people to work with the system when it's massively changed. And it's very difficult to even imagine the changes in a business when you were in the business of selling a commodity. Yes, of course, they're animals. Yes, and of course, that presents extra challenges as far as welfare and, and handling goes. But when you're selling a commodity and it's simply an exchange between two countries, to all of a sudden having responsibility for that cargo for the next, say, 6 to 12 months um, is something that I don't think has been attempted or certainly achieved across the world. So a huge change for everybody but a really incredible opportunity to change the welfare outcomes for Australian animals and get uh, be able to share Australia's expectations and some of Australia's skills and infrastructure knowledge in improving the, the welfare for all animals going through those systems.
1: So how did that impact what... You or industry had been trying to do in market before the ban versus after the ban with the implementation of SCAS. How did that impact the actual activities you could undertake and the, the, uh, influence you had, the rate of change?
2: Um, as people really passionate about instigating change, it was an incredible relief, I think, to, to have a framework to now work with. Um, Although we were working previously to try and change, there wasn't a framework and there certainly was no consequence to poor performance. If, you know, if in an Ida Ladha festival someone threw open the gates and said, your system's too hard, we just have to serve these hundreds of people who are shouting at the gates demanding their sheep, Then, then there was no consequence for us and, you know, we would have to step back and pick up the pieces and work to develop a better plan for next time whereas with the scas system in place um it was really you know everyone had to work together and the goals were really clear and there were consequences to to not meeting scas so scas was uh is audited by internationally accredited auditors who need to go in to a facility and go through a checklist uh with quite specific markers and things they need to view um to make sure that SCAS was being met. So it wasn't a self audited system. This was a system which, you know, the same auditors which go through many international businesses um, but did have some livestock understanding or experience went through these facilities to make sure it was being met. And so there was real, you know, real incentive for everyone to to meet the standards. Uh, and for importers there was sorry, for Australian exporters there was a huge risk to their their licence if it wasn't being met. So all of a sudden, you know, whole business structures changed and people who weren't or companies who weren't or facilities who weren't willing to, to work with the SCAS system could no longer access Australian sheep. And I guess what I haven't addressed yet is those Australian sheep just played such a huge part in the food security for these countries and have for a really long time. Um, they're obviously not agricultural producing nations. Um, the images you see from the Middle East are, are generally fairly correct. You know, there's not a lot of rainfall, there's not a lot of feed. Their production systems are relatively small for the populations which they're supporting. So importing food is is the norm. And Australia have been a really reliable trading partner in getting healthy, um, good green, clean meat into their countries.
1: Talk to me about the experience of trying to educate or train somebody in livestock handling. I know that was one of the roles. There were many different uh, aspects to the job that you had there, but I, I suppose the main part from my understanding is providing training on how to handle Australian animals. Uh
2: it was incredible, actually, because the willingness to learn was huge. By giving them skills to be able to handle the Australian animals, it made their job easier and safer than them trying to adapt the skills they had from handling local animals. I guess the other aspect was that a lot of these people working in, in the facilities at the labour level had not been invested in much. And so to be offered training and to have someone travelling from a different country to give them skills was was really valuable. It did mean that, you know, with that training needed to come infrastructure changes uh, because it is, you know, it's really important things are designed for animal flow and to make things easy and make things safe uh, and create less stress on the animals. So in hand with you know, changing people's behaviour, was actually setting up facilities differently and teaching them the why animals behave the way they do so that they themselves could start to see how to set things up and how to create that animal flow to make things safer and easier. And not just the expectations, but the principles of animal handling, animal movement, animal welfare. It was never a a matter of wanting them to be reliant on us for this training and this information. It was about building them up to understand the system so that they could could manage things themselves.
1: So you're in a foreign country and you have language barriers, cultural differences, not to make a song and dance like this, but you're also a woman in a part of the world where I suppose women play a, have a different role How does that all work into trying to communicate with someone and change behaviour and and train them in something?
2: It was a really incredible experience. I'll never forget post-SCAS, one of my first jobs was to go into a country and obviously, as I've said, there had been a presence previously and we had been sort of trying to improve things incrementally. But going into a country and turning up at the airport and picking up my hire car and I was you know by myself on this trip and I had a GPS with the locations of all of the facilities across this country and my job was essentially to map where Australian sheep were going and how many sheep were going because pre-SCAS once they were off a boat you know they could go anywhere And and quite rightly so. They'd end up in sort of little farms and smaller feedlots and sold as individual animals. Um, And so when SCAS came in, these whole country's supply chains were essentially unknown. And so, you know, I think I had a hotel booked, I had a hire car booked, and my job was to drive around this country and see where Australian sheep were, talk to the management of facilities, see what level they were at, Um, what kind of support they needed to be able to get to SCAS standards, if they could get to SCAS standards at all. And I remember my mind just being blown that I was being given this responsibility and opportunity just to go out there and actually do something. I don't think I ever really – maybe – Maybe with all we hear in Australia, I, I questioned my wisdom of of kind of getting involved as an as a woman at early points. But I guess I'd already done my time in the Ida Ladha festivals and working in larger teams to know that the hospitality of people was incredible. Uh, if anything, the women are put a bit on a pedestal. You know, there was I was a novelty to an extent. They weren't expecting to see people working in a a dirty, or women to be working in a dirty physical environment. Um So there was an element of intrigue of why why you would choose to do this. Uh, I remember being asked by one of the vets I worked, because everyone's very polite at first. You know, everyone, of course, you know, just superficially polite. But as you get to know people more, they ask you more questions. And, you know, he says, Blythe, Blythe, why did you go to primary school? I'm like, oh, yes, Dr. Omar, I've attended school. ah, oh, and high school, tertiary school, do you have education? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, yep, I've done all my schooling, Dr. Omar. He says, ah, then then why, if you're not stupid, would you choose to do this? Why would you work <laughs> with the livestock? <sighs> And it was just such a, you know, and we both laughed and I explained why I worked with livestock and that, you know, many women and kind of intelligent, capable people would choose this role in Australia. But just a real insight into, you know, for them, it wasn't a a noble profession, I guess, to be working out in the yards and... At different times, I'd be doing feedlot work. At different times, I'd be doing abattoir work. And, you know, we'd be on the floor with the guys. You know, you'd be covered in, in blood and guts and shit and, you know, all of those things which comes with working in the nitty-gritty of livestock. And, you know, if anything, as a woman working in those countries, and we were in, in quite a controlled environment as far as, you know, working with management of facilities, But as a woman going in, you got initial attention simply because you were different. Uh, I think the way women communicate and even train works really well in a a system where all of these guys who were from, you know, India, Pakistan, across Africa had left their wives, mothers, daughters, sisters at home. And so having that, you know, having that contact and that softer touch and that, you know, leaving the testosterone out of things quite often got a really good outcome in training and creating change because you just approach things differently.
1: How did you go with the language barriers? Was there a lot of like sign language and finger pointing? To an
2: extent, I guess we're, we're very fortunate that English is the international language and in such a melting pot of cultures such as the Middle East. Most people had a basic understanding of English because not all of them spoke um, the different languages that were, you know, were spoken by the crew. And so a basic level of English was there. Um, you know, I learned a, a basic level of, of Arabic, I guess, um, although I did, you know, at the time I was doing a bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I went to a, a school in Qatar at one stage. It was an all-ladies Um, jiu-jitsu class and I went in and you know we rolled and did our things and then afterwards you know they were very interested in where I was from and what I was doing and their English was impeccable and so I, um, you know, I explained what I was doing and then I said, but I speak a little bit of Arabic and I spoke some of my Arabic and they laughed and laughed and <laughs> laughed and rolled on the floors and said, Oh, yes, you speak, you speak Arabic like an Indian, <laughs> 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 which was because I had worked with a lot of the, the men in the feedlots and the men I was working with and kind of communicating with and learning off. Yeah. Were a lot of men from India, and um, you yeah, know, I'd, I'd thought my Arabic was quite good in in different phrases and put stringing sentences together, but uh, they had tears rolling down their faces, laughing at me.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that! I also love that you were able to go and do these normal aspects of life, like going to a, a jiu-jitsu class, because I, that's what I wanted to ask you as well: is how long would you be over there for? at a time and how do you balance that, you know, having having a work-life balance when so much travel is involved and and keeping, I guess, yourself grounded?
2: Yeah, it was was really difficult. So different jobs and different times. At festival times you'd be quite a big team and the work would be absolutely all-consuming. You know, you would be out there at at 4 a.m. and home at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but you know, working on those things with a big team, there was a, a lot of camaraderie and they were the, although the tougher and high pressure times, probably the easier times, you know, you were making bigger changes to an extent. Um, the grind was, you know, being on a job on your own where you were spending two weeks, three weeks, four weeks with a single facility, just trying to instigate everyday change. Uh, sometimes you'd do that with a small team. Sometimes you'd be on your own, and living in hotels although those sort of very glamorous to start with can get pretty, uh, pretty lonely, I guess. And pretty, you know, you do get absorbed in the work. Um, so maintaining that physical fitness, you know, that access to gyms and things was was really important. And I, you know, I remember at different times, you know, I missed home and. Missed, you know, missed my cattle at home and that, just that outdoor environment, I guess, which which is quite different over there. So sometimes, you know, I'd end up back at the feedlot after work and be picking a bit of grass and going down to the cattle and <laughs> finding some friends in there as as all of us who work with livestock do. So, yeah, it was a, a pretty tough and crazy environment, really. You know, you were in these Western hotels where most expats were involved with finance, banking, um, you know, import, export, like, you know, quite different industries. And then you'd walk into the foyer covered in animal excrement and
1: very, body very fluids, white collar versus blue collar.
2: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and it's, and for that, like our whole team became really well known amongst, you know, the hotels and the, the places we stayed as being really real, genuine people, which I took away a lot of pride in. Um, you know, people would remember our team and remember our names and, you know, it was largely hosp- uh, Filipino crew in the hospitality and they really appreciated that down-to-earthness of the Australian team and I think, you know, I think that showed that the quality of the team, that we were all, you know, people, people and interested in people and recognising that that everyone is human
1: any kind of change is is always going to be slow but particularly in this context i think yet yeah, while while improvements are being made change change has been slow to come around and even people may say i mean we're talking the early i don't know what you call it the 2010s i don't know what we call that decade the 20s are the 20s 30s are the 30s i don't know what we call that the teens
2: the preteens yeah
1: the um you know so where your experience was started when when did you first go over was that 20 20-
2: 2009
1: 2010 yeah so and then you know like you said post scas so that's kind of post 2011 so this is a while ago now there would still be people out there obviously this is a very divisive uh topic that say the change isn't where it needs to be today but just putting that aside for a, one moment because any any rate of change is going to be slow how did you manage to stay motivated and not feel burnt out? I think there's a lot of people working in all sorts of different industries, particularly in Australia, say the health industry or the justice system or anything. And, and you're working towards something, but when it comes so slowly, it can be really easy to become disillusioned and burnt out and be like, well, what's the point? What am I even doing? Why bother?
2: Absolutely. And that, you know, and that was, was true with me to an extent. Um, I was pretty young when I went in and I wouldn't have thought of myself as idealistic, but you go at things with a lot of passion and energy. And there's only so many times you can kind of, every time you pick yourself up and run at that wall, you budget, you know, you might not even notice that you've budged it, but you are creating change. And sometimes you will notice, you know, a bit of a wall fall or a wall push back or, or something change, but certainly. You know, I think different personalities handle it differently and different life stages handle it differently. Uh, we worked with a lot of older guys who were really involved in industry long-term. But I think it's always really important to have, you know, those young, energetic, passionate people who will keep get up and running and really take things on and, you know, go at it like a bit of a terrier. But it's a, it's a natural cycle for that to, to wear people out as well. Um, and that's when... You know, when I finished up, I was, you know, I'd we'd done an incredible job and there was still lots more work to do. But if you stay in a system too long, things become normal and having fresh eyes and fresh faces come in and, you know, see the same problems in different ways. If, you know, if I've attacked a problem 50 times and none of the ways I was attacking it created major change, it would be easier for someone who's done that to, you know, stop trying as much and then a new person comes in and sees the same problem, they might try 30 different ways that don't work and then find something which creates a change or creates a link or um, gets the result which you're after. So it's important to always have sort of fresh eyes coming in and that aiming for continual improvement and not settling that either this is the way it always is or this is impossible to change. Um, to have that coming through is is super important and it's also important to have those, those long-termers who can, you know, remember how much change has happened as long as they've got the attitude that we can always do better.
1: Your work took you to, I think it was half a dozen countries in the Middle East over the course of, of your time doing this um, consultancy, but you also had a chance to travel to and do some work in Russia. What can you tell me about that?
2: Um, that was an incredible opportunity. So that was sort of working with um, a great friend and mentor, Boyd Holden.
1: Uh, episode five on this podcast for anybody <laughs> listening, Boyd Holden, episode five.
2: And we headed over to Russia um, for on behalf of an exporter to do some work with farms that were receiving a lot of Australian animals. So there were two teams of us with a a kind of a handler at the lead, a vet working with us, and a, a horse specialist. And so I went over as the sort of lead of a second team for Boyd and we went into farms and did two days of uh, stock handling Um two days of horsemanship because on the Russian farms they brought a lot of horses over from America to to do their handling and walk from sort of winter feedlot situations to summer pastures. And once again, these people hadn't been invested in as far as training in that much. So there, there was interest in the training, but it was a little bit of a different environment. Um, the so- Russian people... And the Russian employees can be, you know, could be a little bit jaded, um, as to, to what our goals were and what we could actually offer as trainers. Um, so, but incredible to spend six days with these people doing the handling, doing the horsemanship. And then the last two days were actually gathering cattle up and walking them out to summer pasture. So I guess essentially developing some, some mustering skills and gathering and walking cattle out. Um, to, you know, best educate the people and the cattle to make their job easier each year.
1: What are the differences in working with people in the Middle East and Russia?
2: Oh, it's very different and many differences. Uh, I guess the, the first most basic is the, the people we were working with in the Middle East was a labour force which was brought into the country to work in these facilities, and they were sort of sending money back home to – it was an opportunity for them to get ahead by working away and send money back home to their families. Uh, in Russia, we were dealing with Russian nationals, and so that does make quite a difference just in the attitude of people towards workplaces and opportunities and even training opportunities. Um, so the Russians were a bit more wary and jaded, I think, of um westerners coming in and and teaching them something i guess another huge difference in between the countries was uh i've never had anyone turned up with vodka on their breath in the middle east before whereas in in russia that was not an irregular occurrence um and quite often we'd be brought in a little water bottle of homemade vodka for us to try later and the the characters, I guess, in in the Middle East, you know, people were learning because that was their job to learn. Whereas in Russia, I guess it was maybe even more a bit like trying to teach things in Australia, where you'd have a little bit more pushback. Um, and so, you know, in Russia we did work with translators the whole time because there there wasn't that common language theme. And so you'd you'd often or you'd always have a translator sort of working with you and and going through. Uh, we did. Learned little bits of of Russian as we went, of course, and I'll always remember some one of the Russian guys coming in, and we were doing a, a livestock handling exercise. Um, so it would have been something around you know pressure and release, and and recognizing the impact that you're having on animals in a handling situation. And he came in and did a totally piss poor effort, and you know was really ordinary and, you know, turned around to me and did his big fake smile and a big thumbs up and said, Ochen Harishaw, which, you know, is very good. And I was, you know, furious because he'd been pushing back the whole time in class and just not interested. And in my best furious Australian voice, I said, Ochen Niet Harishaw, which is very not good. And I think from then, you know everyone just erupted in laughter, and you know he'd he'd been this bit of a joker and character in the class, and from that point, you know we'd kind of laid our cards on the table, and from that point, we got along and had fun, and he put a bit of effort in and but you'd never get that kind of a pushback, I guess in the Middle East, whereas you know you really had to kind of show the Russians you knew what you were doing and that you were one of the team and you know you had a sense of humor before they'd really come on board in in trying things and taking things on
1: that's just made me think of another you know there's another layer of complexity there in your job so i think training anyone in anything is is a difficult job i know well i think for some people more than others but then also I just, I suppose I'm wondering, you're in another country and both of these regions aren't necessarily the most politically stable or safest regions in the world. Does that play on your mind when you're trying to do your job as well? I'm just wondering, uh, particularly given say like the current going ons in Russia and also I, I just knowing how hard it is to get a tourist visa to go to Russia, you know, like not everywhere is Obviously the world is very different and, and just wondering, like, if you're training someone and then you get into a bit of a Barney or you, or do you have in the back of your mind, like, oh, if I really offend someone or piss them off, like, could I end up in a situation over here where I don't have, you know, support or, um, you know, I just think of like journalists that have gone to the Middle East and then ended up kidnapped or, or whatever. And you kind of, does that ever play on your mind that you are so far away from home and in these, you know, politically unstable, unstable places and...
2: Look, it's something you always have to to keep in mind in the way you conduct yourself and the situations you put yourself in. But in the working with livestock, we were always there because we'd been invited by the importer and we weren't in particularly political-type situations, so very different for people going over in, you know, aid or journalism or things like that. So I never... I never really felt unsafe. I don't think I ever felt unsafe. I felt fairly supported. We had a really good support team and network back in Australia. And, you know, some of those guys to this day, if I was in a, a heap of shit, then, you know, it'd be Dundo would be my call. If there was a, someone to get you out of a situation, uh, we had a really strong team and good networks. And look, I had better phone service on farms on the Ukraine border in Russia than we get on our own farm in Australia. <laughs> so communication wasn't wasn't that difficult. Um, there were, you know, there were reminders, I guess, of, of the situation on the farm which was right on the Ukraine border. I remember, you know, our team got taken out to sort of see the border. This is our farm. This is Ukraine. And we were, you know, taking some photos and being a bit goosey. And then out of the, the forest, essentially, emerged fully camoed, fully face-painted, um, automatic weapon-carrying soldiers. Um, three or four kind of melted out of the bush and, you know, approached the guy who'd, who'd taken us out here and had some pretty stern questions for him. Um, he presented our documentation. They looked up their documentation and saw that they, we were recorded for being in the area. And then they melted away, and you'd never known they were there um so you know the tensions have been going on there a long time, and I guess to an extent when you're you know young and commitment free and and traveling a lot, you can't be afraid of every situation or you'd never do anything um but there were reminders along the way of you know wow, there's you know really serious stuff going on in the world and and I'm really glad to have been exposed to that because. You know, Australia is a very safe bubble to live in. Um, you know, even traveling through Russia and seeing some of the, the poverty and conditions people were living in and hearing tales of, you know, children dying of ear infections. And, you know, it's a real reality check when you're actually feet on the ground in those areas. It really brings the bigger picture of how so much of the world lives
1: you have had an incredible wealth of experiences in the time that you spent working in the livestock export industry. It's just phenomenal to think about. Where do you go after having a job like that? You mentioned earlier that it's important to have new people come into industry and some people, you know, not to stay there forever and And you moved on. But how do you, how do you Find a new normal after such an exciting and incredibly rewarding career. I guess
2: Live Export gave me the opportunity to to travel the world, and particularly in the last couple of years, circumstances where travel is so limited. I, I look back at what we used to do and and just smile in amazement. It has been a an incredible opportunity. Travelling the world and seeing different agricultural systems, um, so as well as sort of the Middle East and Russia, um, I travelled with uh, the Cattle Council of Australia to places like Texas and Mexico um, as parts of delegations, visiting different properties, seeing different systems, and as well as my expectations of of high welfare systems, um, I became much more interested in... The, the actual production side of things. So land management, um, developing farming systems that are both a environmental positive and a animal welfare positive. And so in, in 2014, so a bit before I finished up overseas, um, I was already burning out a bit sort of at that stage. And then it just became a greater. A greater need and want to spend more time at home, um, put roots down, literally and really. After seeing so much of the world where agriculture and land management has has done damage, I really wanted a piece of a piece of ground of our own to to improve and try things and see that if I could be part of a system which is actually. Um, providing really amazing quality food, whilst building soil and uh, providing wildlife habitat, and yeah, create a system which is quite holistic um, in its its view. So we we bought our first farm uh, called Runnymede in twenty fourteen, and set about trialling some methods from, you know, amazing people we'd both met and and heard of um, over our career. So people like Alan Savory, uh, Joel Salatin, Gabe Brown are all doing incredible things in terms of land management and and animal production. We started with beef cattle, so started producing our own beef cattle and and then moved into pastured poultry, so egg production, um, which has just been this incredible learning journey. Uh, we moved to a, a second farm uh, three years ago through a stage succession plan with a retiring farmer um, that I used to work with and it's been a big step up um, in land size and management sort of style and strategy and yeah, we're just working really hard on our sort of our beef breeding program, our grass finishing and the egg production has become quite a big part of our business. So it's, you know, from one adventure to another and one learning curve to another, um, you know, they've both been incredible journeys and um, I'm really excited to see where we end up with, with this business.
1: Now, I know you're a cowgirl from way back beef you know beef cattle that's always been your thing and this is obviously a podcast that centers around people that have some connection to cattle but I have to ask you about the chickens we we've got to talk about the chickens because as people will come to see in just a moment there's a huge um, parallel there with you know you may think oh my god how do you go from working with in the Middle East and live export in that industry to raising chickens like how does that marry up but it re- it really does the way you I'd never actually seen this before so in Australia I think most people would be aware that there's two to three I think most people probably just think of it as a binary like uh in terms of production systems like your cage eggs or your free range there's also an intermediate one there called barn laid but yours is different I know technically speaking it comes under free range but the way you raise your chickens just is, I don't know, it's just the coolest thing ever. Can you explain how, what what pasture-raised poultry is and how that works? Paint us a picture and then we'll make sure everyone runs over to your social media and watches <laughs> the videos and the photos because it's, guys, it is the coolest thing you've ever seen and you'll never look at a packet of free-range eggs in the supermarket the same ever again.
2: It is, it's an amazing system. It's one we've seen done around the world. Um, Everyone does it a little bit differently. It's a tiny part of the egg industry. But the the pastured system is a system focused both on hen welfare and land health. Uh, Anyone who's had a chicken pen has seen that, you know, if that chicken pen's stagnant or static, then those chickens will eat everything green and you'll end up with bare dirt where nothing will grow. And the same for those bigger industry type systems. Um, chickens, the impact that they have on environment and community can be quite negative because you've got so many birds in one place, uh, enclosed and the free range legislation isn't really what, you know, people think of when they think of free range birds. So the pastured system involves mobile housing. So we've got mobile trailers where the birds roost at night and where they lay their eggs onto a a central conveyor belt and those vans move around the farm. So chickens do about 60% of their pooping at night. So when they're sleeping, they fertilise the ground underneath the vans. Um, Those vans are never, the doors are never shut and those chickens, as soon as it's near daylight, they'll jump out. Um, They've got sort of ad-lib access to grain, which they do need to, to keep laying eggs at a commercial scale they've got ad lib access to grain and they spend their day out um you know hunting for grasshoppers and resting in the shade with their mates and doing chickeny things which is really important for us for those animals to be able to exhibit their natural behaviors
1: so yeah your chickens pretty much are the epitome of free range they're out You know, we went out and saw them yesterday. I've seen them several years ago when you first started. That's obviously how often I visit. (laughs) This is the problem when your friends live all around the world. But the chickens, so, yeah, you've got these little mobile houses out there. So they can go in and they've got shelter and shade and all that kind of stuff. And That's where they they lay the eggs. And then basically, but even if they wanted to at night and throughout the daytime, at any point in time, they can pretty much – Get in the paddock and go as far as they want. I mean, if they wanted to, they could all just pack their bags and leave. Really, like it's you're not it's not like you've got some kind of enclosed thing over the sky. Don't give them any ideas, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> no. But really, like I, yesterday when we went to see them, probably the furthest one was about a hundred meters out. Um, But the bulk of them would be say within twenty meters, maybe radius of the of the mobile housing, and you move that around. So they have this free, this. Insane freedom, which is what I imagine when I think of free range, but having studied agriculture and even though I focus on beef, not poultry, I've known from previous studies that that's not actually how free range works. You also, I suppose one argument perhaps against raising animals in this, in this way would be like, Oh, well, they're out and there's predators everywhere but you have a solution to keep your little chickens safe when they're out, whether they're 20 metres or 100 metres from the housing.
2: Absolutely. So our birds are guarded by Maremma guardian dogs. Um, The livestock guardian dog group is quite a big group of dogs. I think there's about 12 different breeds. And these incredible dogs bond to the livestock they grow up with and spend their lives protecting them. So that's the little village. The dogs stay and camp out there with the chickens and they foxes are our main predators. So they're fox guards and also aerial predators. They'll give warning and take chase after predatory birds that come around
1: if they look like they're threatening the chickens. Anyone that's been a long-time listener of this podcast knows I have some horrendous analogies, but basically the chickens are like, <laughs> yeah, blast, like, oh God, where is this going? <laughs> The chickens are like little um, Whitney Houston's and the Maramas are their Kevin Costner's in the bodyguard. Like the Maramas are their bodyguards and the chickens are like on tour and they move from, you know, around the farm area to area and, yeah, they have these little Kevin Costner. I mean, it could be Kevin Costner in the bodyguard or Kevin Costner in Yellowstone. Either way, they're there protecting them. They're pretty badass. Yeah. But also the, like, softest, most gentle, docile animals I'd like, I'd like to kind of be there though to see what happens when a fox or a big bird or something kind of gets close enough just to see them in action.
2: They are. They are incredible. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a bit of a dog addict. I do love a lot of dogs between our herding dogs for the um, cattle work. But the the Maremas are, are truly incredible in their natural instinct and operating independently. Um taking photos with Steph yesterday. You know, Steph was trying to tell them what to do and I kind of closed my eyes and put my hand on my face. I went, oh, Steph, you don't tell these dogs what to do. <laughs> they are, you know, they're a li- almost a different level of domestication. Um, they don't need us. They they adore us and they hang out with us, but they're not, you know, we're not the centre of their, li- their lives. Those, you know, those chickens and their pack out living with the chickens is, you know, what they're bred to do and what they love to do.
1: Now I'll, as I alluded to just before, there is a strong parallel, at least with what I see between your previous work in the live export industry and what you're doing now. I can see, and we've discussed off air, that from a outsider's point of view, it may seem really like an odd switch to work in, to go from working in an industry that has such negative connotations and is kind of always known for the worst parts or the things that have gone wrong rather than the successes. Like, yeah, that's. I guess that's the way to say it. This industry is known for its failures rather than its successes, uh, which is a shame because while certainly there have been failures, there have been a lot of successes and positive contributions made by the export industry. But So I can see if people uh, have that view of export and they're like, but now you're all animal welfare and loving and this great life for hens. I suppose though, what I see is the work you did in live export was all to promote and, um, develop animal welfare and improve it. And this is exa- you're doing the exact same thing here, but just with different animals and in a different environment.
2: Yeah. And in a more controlled environment where I can control everything on this farm. Uh, I sadly cannot control everything in livestock production chains globally. Um, You know, because it is, there's so many people and so many cultures and so many things involved. But you're, you're quite correct when, you know, my whole career has been around making systems work for animals and helping people to understand how to make systems work for animals. Any situation where an animal's in, a production animal is in, it's there because we've put it there. And so it is our job to, you know, understand what's going on for them and how we can streamline that process. It's, I'm still involved in the the live export industry. I still do training for the stockies, stock men and women who go on board the ships. So I coordinate the training for them to help them understand the Australian regulation and the expectations and give them some skills and knowledge on where to find information and how to communicate with both people and animals to create change and uphold the expectations of government and industry. But it is, you know, the live export industry will change and evolve. There is still a focus on, you know, a large focus on improving systems and creating change what will also evolve is our markets traditionally in the middle east uh receiving you know whole live animals was very important because of carcass utilization they use everything you know they use the feet and the tongues and the eyeballs and the heads and you know i'll never forget the most interesting meal i had was you know A tray served to me, cooked especially for me as the special guest at a feedlot. And I turned up and it was mashed tongue and eyeball and bread. And I had to politely eat this, even though I was on the back of a food poisoning incident from a hotel lounge (laughs) and had to eat this. It didn't grow on me. (laughs) I don't like to um, be insulting of other people's food, but, oh, my goodness, it did not grow on me. Um, You know, that utilisation, that whole carcass utilisation is something we don't understand or do much in Australia. Um, But even, you know, those more traditional ways are moving as well and, you know, there is and will be less demand for that whole carcass utilisation. You know, we're already seeing huge changes in how animals are transported as far as chilled carcasses going into markets. There will be a constant evolution of the markets we're trading with and that will change the, I guess, demands and what live export provides to the world. But we certainly should never stop trying to make systems better. Um, You know, all of these production animals are, are in our systems that we've created And it's our job as handlers to always ensure we're creating continuous improvement.
1: Looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson?
2: I think saying, both saying yes to opportunities. You just never know where things are going to lead you. Um, And that does require to be a bit brave and take some risk. And some things will work out and some things won't. You know, and when things don't work out or when, you know, things are going really shit or really hard, um, to remember that, you know, you've made it through every tough day so far and that this too will pass. So, you know, being open to opportunities because they will lead to adventures beyond your wildest dreams. You know, I could never have, have dreamed or predicted or plotted um, my career line so far. And when you sit down and talk about it, you know, it reads a bit like a a storybook. Uh, and that never would have come about if I hadn't sort of said yes to some opportunities, which seemed a bit intimidating or seemed a bit, a bit scary, or I perhaps didn't feel totally prepared for. Um, but if you wait for everything to be perfect, then you'd never do anything. So just, just taking that bit of a risk and a bit of a step and, and backing yourself.